Okay, well, um, we're just going to move into uh, looking at the Word of God. If you have your Bibles here this morning, if you could open them up to 1 Peter chapter 1, and also Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 47. So that's 1 Peter chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, and Ezekiel 47. Um, While you're looking for those. uh, So 72 years ago, on Christmas Day, some daring, rebellious, cheeky, impudent Scottish students risked their liberty by breaking into Westminster Abbey in London, the resting place of kings, queens, the venue that plays host to coronations, royal marriages, and funerals. And these four Glasgow students in two Ford Anglias stole something that hit right at the heart of the British monarchy, the establishment, the constitution, the union itself. It also forced the closure of the border between Scotland and England for the first time in 400 years. Labour politician at the time and lead prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, Sir Hartley Shawcross said, the manifest disregard for the sanctity of the Abbey were vulgar acts of vandalism which have caused great distress and offence both in England and Scotland. Some of you who are a little younger might ask, what did they steal? Was it a golden chalice? Precious jewels? A painting? The sword of some famous king? Did anyone know what they stole? A stone. The stone of destiny. This, uh, this stone was 650 mil by 400 by 270 or 26 inches by 16 inches by 10. The stone had been used in the coronation of Scottish kings for centuries until it was stolen in 1296 by Edward I of England and subsequently used in the coronation of English monarchs and future British monarchs. And it will be used again for Prince Charles's coronation. The stone was eventually found down the road in Arbroath, in the Abbey in 1951 and later returned to Westminster in 52. In 96, however, it was repatriated to Edinburgh Castle where you can view it behind some bulletproof glass. It's amazing that a simple object made from the ground can hold so much significance and importance. The stone itself is set apart for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to affirm the monarchy. This morning we're going to look at how God himself is set apart and how he has set us apart. So we're going to start off with 1 Peter chapter 1. It's going to be a long one. We're going to go through the first chapter and some of chapter 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect in exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, don't, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Pray this morning 
that your Holy Spirit would encourage us by it, equip us, correct us where we need correction, Lord. Bless your word to us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this letter is the first we have from the Apostle Peter and is considered one of the Catholic letters as it's universally accepted by scholars that he is the most likely author. He writes to several churches in northern Turkey and interestingly you'll notice in verse 2 he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It looks like a straightforward greeting but he's actually playing on some words and customary greetings. The most common greeting in Greek at the time is the word kairi, meaning hello or cheers. But Peter plays on the word and uses kairis, meaning grace. Then he says to the Jewish audience, shalom, meaning peace. And by simply using the two words, he's united Jews and Gentiles under the gospel in one sentence. This is the same gospel that unites us, no matter our background or culture, all are called to come to Christ, find forgiveness, die to ourselves, and lead a life dedicated to him. From verses 3 to 12, Peter reminds us that as his elect, chosen by God, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's not by chance or human will. Being completely lost and dead in our sins, it is the Father who has drawn us to himself and given us to his Son. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. From verse 13 to the beginning of chapter 2, Peter urges his readers to live a life of holiness, being drawn by the Father. Our salvation is accomplished by the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. And once saved, we're all called to a mandatory life of holiness. It's not optional. Verses 15 to 16 say, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So two questions this morning. How is God holy? And how should we be holy? So simply, the, the word holiness or holy just means set apart for a specific purpose. Unique or distinct. Dr. Tim Mackey provides a helpful metaphor when thinking about God's holiness. If we think of the sun, it's the most powerful object in our solar system. It's the source of life. It holds the solar system together and it's therefore unique. So we could say that the sun is holy. We could take it even further though and describe the area around the sun as holy. The closer we get to the sun, the more intense it gets. The surface burns at just under 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 5,500 degrees Celsius. The heat radiates outwards, annihilating objects before they even get close to the surface. For all the good we receive from the sun, it's also extremely dangerous. And that's the paradox of God's holiness. If you are impure, his presence is dangerous to you. Not because it's bad, but because it's so good. If you remember the story of Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, God tells Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. 
God's holiness is so intense that for Moses to come any closer would have meant certain death. And we also find this theme expanded upon in the stories about Jerusalem's temple. If you remember, the temple was a permanent structure in Jerusalem where God's holy presence was located. The temple was constructed architecturally to represent the ever-increasing intensity of God's holiness. And at its core was a room called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And that's where God's holiness was most intense. Only one individual, the high priest, could enter once a year. Now, whether you were an average Israelite working on a farm or a priest in the temple, all of Israel was in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. So what was the answer to correctly entering God's presence and remaining safe? Well, the solution that the Bible gives is that the people need to become pure morally and ritually. Moral purity is doing the right thing. That's fairly easy to understand. Whereas ritual purity is the state where you separate yourself from anything to do with death. And you can become ritually impure by touching diseased skin, dead bodies, or certain bodily fluids. And these are not necessarily sinful acts, but they do make you impure. And the major issue that the Bible tries to communicate is the fact that you can't just waltz in to God's presence in an impure state. And that's why God gave the Israelites detailed instructions on how to identify when they became impure, how to become pure and rightly enter the temple. And the book of Leviticus outlines all those details. Now this theme of holiness and purity doesn't just end at Leviticus. If we skip ahead 600 years to the prophet Isaiah, we find the story in chapter 6. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 6 from verse 1, It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. A temple full of smoke, seraphim, live coals, tongs, an altar. What's it all about? Well, God has given Isaiah a vision of the temple where he is in God's presence and he's absolutely terrified. He's well aware of the rules around entering God's presence and knows he's not clean. Then we get a strange picture of a seraphim, a fiery serpent, a throne guardian, taking a lump of coal from the altar with tongs, placing it in its hand, touching Isaiah's lips with it, saying, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So somehow this coal 
has made Isaiah pure. Remember what we said earlier, when an Israelite touched something impure, its impurity passed to them. But here we have a holy and pure object touching something impure, Isaiah, and transferring its holiness to him. And in the Bible, this is a new idea. We'd usually expect impure objects touched by holy objects to be destroyed. But Isaiah isn't. Rather, he is transformed by it. Ezekiel also has a vision that connects to Isaiah's. If we look at Ezekiel chapter 47, just verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water. It was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? So a steady trickling stream from the temple flows out from under its threshold to the east, bringing abundant life as it moves through the desert. It eventually ends up at the Dead Sea, where it is now a great river that has trees planted on its banks. Which should remind you of Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Also, you'll notice that the source of the river flows from the temple out towards the east, the direction in which Adam and Eve were banished. And this is a picture of the new Eden with life flowing from God's presence out into the world. So we have Isaiah and Ezekiel showing us a picture of what God is going to do. Instead of becoming pure to enter his temple and into God's presence, God's holiness is moving out from the temple and into the world, bringing life to all it encounters. Imagine for a second your Isaiah or Ezekiel, two prophets who are intimately acquainted with the scriptures, laws, and sacrificial rituals. They must have blown their minds. What does it all mean? What would have been clear to them, though, is that God is going to do something radical that fulfills his promise to restore to himself a family that partners with him to steward his creation. So it's not until we meet Jesus in the New Testament, 700 years later, after Isaiah's vision, 600 years after Ezekiel's, that we get a clearer picture. His claim 
is that he's fulfilling these Old Testament visions, but in surprising new ways. Think about some of the things that Jesus did. He touched and healed a leper. He touched and healed a blind man. He touched and healed Peter's mother-in-law. He touched and healed a paralytic. He touched and healed a man with a withered hand. He touched and healed Jairus' dead daughter. What should happen when Jesus touches these people? Well, their impurity should pass to him. But instead, his purity passes to them. He's like the coal in Isaiah's prophecy. His claim is that he is the embodiment of God's own holiness. And that his followers are his temple. And that through them, God's holy presence would move out into the world, bringing life and hope. Verse 38 says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's John chapter 7. This is where we find ourselves at the moment. But scripture looks beyond us in the here and now. In Revelation, a guy named John has a final vision about God's holiness, where the whole earth is God's temple and has been made completely new. Ezekiel's river is flowing out of God's presence, removing all impurity. So what does it all mean? Well, as Christians, God has made us holy through his son. We have been set apart, which means we should be distinct from the world and the culture around us in the world, but not of it. We have a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of being. Informed by scripture, the living, breathing, inspired word of God. No longer do we live for ourselves. No longer do we live for our own passions. But we constantly assess our motives and actions by saying to ourselves, not my will, but yours be done. If we're to image God, to represent him among our friends, family and colleagues, to stand as God's temple among them, holy, set apart. We need to constantly observe and assess our lives to make sure it lines up with how he wants us to live. But how do we know how he wants us to live? How do we know how to be holy? Well, thankfully, he had people write it down. We should be asking ourselves things like, do my relationships bring glory to God? Am I allowing myself to be led astray by those who are opposed to him? Am I representing Christ well to those I regularly engage with? First Peter in chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Am I bringing glory to God with my body? Am I setting my body apart? For his glory. Am I using it as he designed it to be used? Do I bring glory to God with my time? Ephesians chapter 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. As God's mobile, holy temple, with his presence living in us, by his Holy Spirit. How aware are we when, we when our feet become muddied by the world's path? 
And as worshippers, bought at a significant price, set apart, we're not our own. As God's imagers and representatives, we have a duty to represent him well. And that takes honest reflection, comparing our lives to the word of God. Jesus compared scripture to a mirror. And a well-crafted, polished mirror reflects exactly what's placed in front of it. When you stand in front of a mirror in the morning before leaving the house, you notice toothpaste on your face. I hope you remove it. Thinking about your life, what would scripture reflect? Will you allow God to help you deal with it? Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the desire of God for every worshipper. This is our true worship. To be transformed like the coal transformed Isaiah. To be a blessing to the world through the river of life that flows through us. Like the stone of destiny, handpicked from many stones, we each have been set apart, made holy, and being made holy for one purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Recognizing whom it is we serve and the great exchange that's taken place between us and God, our sins laid on Christ while his righteousness is laid on us. That leads us to a desire to imitate him and respond by singing and shouting for joy to his glory. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. I just pray um, that as we continue to think on these things, that you would develop that holiness in us, Lord. We know that you have set us apart already, but through the process of sanctification, through making us like your son, you continue to make us holy, set apart for your purposes, not of the world, but of your kingdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to speak to our hearts. And as we walk in this world and interact with our friends, family, colleagues, we would share the love of Christ. We would be imitators of Christ. We would cut off those things of the world in our hearts that are not of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would break these things off that are not of you now, Lord. Speak to our hearts. Show us the things where our lives do not line up with your word. Show us where we need to rein things in, lay things down, or take some things up. Lord, I thank you that you have forgiven our sins. I thank you that there is grace and mercy available to us if we come to you, we ask for forgiveness. You are faithful, Lord, to remove our sins, guilt, and shame. 
to give us a life that imitates your son.